0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. Today, we're delighted to welcome as our guest Faye Bound-Alberti, who has an unusual take on the other 21st century pandemic, the emotional epidemic called loneliness. Dr. Faye Bound-Alberti, is a British cultural historian of gender, emotion, and medicine. She's a UK Research and Innovation Future Leaders Fellow and the co-director of the Centre for Global Health Histories. Fay Bound-Alberti, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. Well, I bet that most listeners today have had at least moments and probably longer periods of time in which they felt lonely in their lives. Mm. But your thesis in a biography of loneliness is that loneliness was not always part of the human condition. Rather, it's a modern emotional state.
1: Tell us why you think so. Well, my work in the history of emotions looks at how emotions change over time and how they, they differ between different countries and cultures. And I became very interested in people talking about an epidemic of loneliness um, in the 21st century. And I, as historians of emotions tend to do, (laughs) investigated where the language came from and where this anxiety around loneliness came from. And what I discovered is it wasn't really until about 1800 that the word loneliness came into being. Um, Before then, it was used occasionally, but mostly um, as an equivalent to a much earlier word called wanliness, and that word meant the state of being alone, so being in solitude, and there was not the same emotional anxiety about loneliness then, and part of the reason for that is that before the modern period, uh, people lived quite differently um, this is before mass urbanisation and industrialization, when there was a profound sense of God's existence and God was the explanation for things that were terrible as well as things that were good, but there was a sense of meaning. And gradually, with the emergence of modernity, that was lost. And that's the context in which the language of loneliness becomes um, an issue so that you have this rise in the language of loneliness, in the English language, um, I should add, because most of my study is about the UK and um, and the United States, though it does make some commentary on the rest of the world. So we have this sweeping movement in a kind of post-industrial sense towards loneliness as being a secular affliction and being a modern problem. It isn't until the 1980s that it becomes talked about in terms of an epidemic or a plague or a crisis. And again, this is connected to Social and economic and political factors. So, the point of the book is to say loneliness is not just a single solitary emotional state or a psychological state, it's also about how we live in society.
0: Well, in in that case, to clarify the concept, help us draw the dimensions and the boundaries of loneliness. You've already said, and I think most people would easily agree, that solitude Mm. is not loneliness.
1: Yes, my my interpretation of loneliness is that it is um, an emotional lack. It's a painful sense of disconnect between the relationships you have and those that you want. Now, people can be lonely in marriages or surrounded by people. Um, it's about the quality of that connection and that experience. And so, it is very different to solitude because people aren't always lonely when they are alone. Um, and that has really come to the fore during the pandemic Pandemic, when, you know, I think half of the world's population at points has been in lockdown. Um, and so people are learning to be alone in different ways. We have people talking quite explicitly about feeling lonely, but other people talk about the relief of not having to go through the effort of social contact. So I do think that this pandemic is is really making us think about the nuances and the complexities of loneliness. And where people are lonely, it tends to be in very different ways. So one of the arguments that I make in the book is that actually, we talk about this thing called loneliness, but it's not one thing. It's a very complex cluster of emotions If somebody is bereaved and there is a lot of bereavement and pain at the moment in the world, that bereavement and loss means that loneliness can be mostly about grief and about mourning for somebody. Whereas if somebody spends a lot of time online, a teenage boy, perhaps, um, it's a different quality of lack in terms of those social relationships. So loneliness is a different thing depending on what a person's circumstances are.
0: Uh, so when you talk about the loneliness of grief, of missing the person who's gone and feeling disconnected from other people mm. who are still engaged mm. in living relationships, mm. that's a, that although it's the same word, are you saying that that's a different
1: phenomenon? I think it then? is a different phenomenon. And, and so grief and um, depression and anxiety, are emotions that are often associated with loneliness but there's a profound quality of those experiences when it comes to grief because it's a single person that you're lonely for and no no it doesn't matter how many other people are in your life that cannot be solved and that's very different say if you're a a young mother working at home as so many people are during the pandemic and you are juggling work and and um And life at home and your children are crawling over you and you're, you know, you don't have a moment to yourself, you might be intensely lonely, but that will be loneliness for, you know, the time and the space that you have as a separate person to enjoy the world because you don't have any time for yourself. So I think these nuances are important when we want to attend to the very real lived reality in people's lives and how some people do need interventions and support and other people can be lonely but actually okay sitting with that loneliness
0: and would you say that uh, something like homesickness Mm. or nostalgia that they are an element of loneliness or loneliness is a an element in those phenomena, how, how do they fit in?
1: I think they are connected, Renee, and one of the reasons I think so is that so much about our sense of belonging in the world is about the material world around us. So often, homesickness is about a longing for the foods or the smells or the, or the objects that we surround ourselves with in spaces where we feel safe and we feel at home. So I think that they're entangled, and homesickness and a sense of belonging is a kind of particular form and linked to loneliness. Nostalgia is a fascinating one because people are often a bit condemnatory about nostalgia and say that it's this, you know, sort of unrealistic longing for the good old days. But what I find fascinating about nostalgia is that in older people who are losing social connections as peer groups die and so on, nostalgia actually helps maintain a sense of belonging um, in the world. And, And partly that's because nostalgic ideas and often it's music and we find that in people with dementia music or food or stories of the past make people feel connected in the present so there is a body of work to be done on what is the function of nostalgia in preventing loneliness
0: Uh, it's an interesting observation Mm -hmm. yes that's that's true although young people can also be nostalgic for a time and a place. Mm. You know, my, my summer in Paris. Yes, that's right. My- yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because the stories we tell about moments in our lives that are important to us, we're not always conscious of it at the time, but later on, they become part of those building blocks by which we say, this is who I am in the world. And this is what matters to me. Um, and when one lacks those, or they fall away, that's when that sense of loneliness and not belonging tends to creep in. Mm-hmm.
0: Even for someone who feels that they belong in their new place, nostalgia for the old place or time yeah. can coexist.
1: Yes, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? And maybe yeah. that's the because we're never one single person or one single um, state of mind. We're very complex human beings, aren't we? <laughs>
0: Yes, it seems we are, <laughs> although sometimes we seem very simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, it, it, you mention another kind of loneliness in the book, and that is loneliness that is chosen, mm. for example, by creative people. Yes. And I, I wondered about that for a while, because if it's chosen, is it really loneliness? Mm. Yeah, that's, you can-
1: yeah that's, I think this is a really important and interesting issue because – if we read the work of someone like Virginia Woolf, uh, the writer, she talks a lot about loneliness um, in her diary, and she talks about solitude. And you're absolutely right that creative people, in particular, through history, have chosen to be alone. And and you know, in the in the time of kind of um, you know the monastic um, desire to retreat. That was a sort of spiritual connection with God, so in a sense, hermits um, you know in the fourth century were not alone because they were in this mental world where God was there and by the same token, I think, people who seek solitude for the purposes of creativity, they are in conjunction with or surrounded by this sense of a higher purpose or a creative outlet um, sometimes that state of being solitudinous tips into loneliness. And there's a very interesting um, remark that Virginia Woolf makes in her um, writer's diary, where she says she's going to spend some time, even when she's with other people, seeking out loneliness in her own mind and attacking the shape of something that she wants to reach. And she talks about the pain involved in having to access that kind of loneliness that it takes her nevertheless to the she calls it the bottom of the vessel to try to kind of recreate a different kind of reality and we find this in the work of May Sarton too who was a writer um, in the 1970s she's talking in a journal of solitude about although loneliness is intensely painful it's a necessary part of the process of solitude and of creation Um, and what she does is she talks about how she keeps busy with nature, she gardens, and she sort of imagines her um, her lonely mind as being tended to in the same way that you might tend to a garden, so that we go through these seasons in our mind, and it's only by nurturing and sustaining and, and taking care of our mental health that all of these little buds of ideas come. So, so these ideas around creativity and isolation and loneliness and the natural world are often sort of bundled together historically um, in the desire to create.
0: Mm -hmm. When I read that uh, part of your book, Mm. the analogy that sprang to mind about the role of choosing a condition, and is it the same as not choosing, seemed analogous to me uh, with people who have, Uh, Food scarcity, they had to have it's difficult for them to get access to food Mm. compared their, they experience hunger compared with someone who in in the midst of abundance makes a decision for whatever reason to fast for 24 hours. They're both hungry, but they're really not at all the same.
1: That's, I think that's a really wonderful analogy, not least because loneliness is often described as a kind of hunger, a sort of emotional hunger for other people. But that's absolutely right. And I, and I do think that that's why at the heart of the book, there is a kind of political question about what is the function of the state and what is that, what are our relationship obligations in helping other people? Because there are two different kinds of loneliness in my mind. And that is loneliness that is extent, it's existential and it's about this feeling of not connecting for what other reason. And it, and it can be a mark of privilege to choose to withdraw from society and spend time alone writing. Um, and that's set against um, what I call structural loneliness, which is when people are utterly isolated from society and from one another and they might have long-term health problems, mental or physical. Um, and during this pandemic, they've not even been able to have people to come and change their bandages. I mean, that's a particularly profound material form of loneliness, which is different. Um, and I'm not saying that existential and structural loneliness can't coexist, but that is the complexity, I think, of loneliness, that it just means different things to different people.
0: Maybe we should have different words for it. Yeah. Uh, so would you include under existential loneliness the kind of, of loneliness described in ancient writings, such as the Psalms, mm. where the psalmist often expresses anguish mm. of, uh, of a deficit, an emotional deficit of uh, feeling alone or abandoned yeah. or not in touch yeah. with God. There, yeah. Many religious writings include that.
1: I think this is a, a really important aspect of it because talking about feeling um, anxious and alone in the context of a A a body of writing and a culture in which there is a God and there's a certainty about it, even if at that moment one feels abandoned, I think is qualitatively different to the secular loneliness that we see after the 1920s when existential philosophers are saying God is dead and how do we make meaning in this world. Um, I think that there is a particularly isolating sense of existential loneliness that's connected to the secular life, Um, which isn't to say that the existential feeling of being abandoned isn't real in earlier periods or in religious spaces, but I think there are qualitative differences.
0: Like the difference between someone being far away and inaccessible Mm, versus someone being dead. And God yeah,
1: that's I think that's a really good way of putting it. So I suppose, in the t- in the sense that if somebody is far away and inaccessible, there's always a hope and a yearning at the same time that there is the grief and the feeling of abandonment, and we don't get that when there's a sense of disconnect because a person is dead.
0: Okay, so we conventionally think about loneliness as um, a social, emotional, psychological condition. Mm. But your writings stress another aspect, the physicality of it, the embodied nature of loneliness. Tell us about that and, if you will, about your own experience
1: with it. Well, you see, I'm a historian of emotion. So um, I've looked at how people have understood emotion um, since the classical period. Um, And we have this galenic or humoral theory of emotion that lasted um it lasted for many centuries from the second right. to the 18th century really in the west in terms of understanding how the mind and body fitted together how the spirit was part of that how our relationships with others were part of that and it's with the rise of scientific medicine in particular in the 19th century although you do have the separation of mind and body uh, much early with descartes You have this scientific medicine that's compartmental in the body into lots of different bits and saying um, emotions belong in the mind and you know everything else can take place in the body but it's the brain in particular in neuroscience that's become this way of thinking about emotions and our passions and these are very individual emotions at the same time so the mind sciences as they emerged took for granted that the brain was the space where where emotions took place Um, And so I'm very interested with that lingerie approach or that sort of way of thinking about emotions. I'm interested in how much of the language we use to talk about emotions is still rooted in in an idea that they are bodily, that they are physical. Um, And emotions are felt in distinct physical ways. Uh, What's interesting about loneliness is that when when people go to the GP these days, they go to the uh, doctors and say, you know, they're feeling anxious or depressed doctors now look out for signs of loneliness. And they look out for if they are folding their arms across their chest, if they seem dejected, if they're not taking care of their personal appearance. And all of that is bundled up into how we perceive anxiety and depression being physically displayed on bodies. Um, And that's different to how we perceive when we notice that someone is angry, they might have a flushed face or they're Fists might uh, clench. So each emotion has a kind of um, a set of behaviour codes or emotional expressions that we expect. Because loneliness is so different, and it's not just about anxiety and depression, it manifests in lots of different ways that we are not really used to talking about. And what I noticed in studying how loneliness is physical was how often Physical therapies like massage and dancing and music and moving together in collaboration with other people actually decreased feelings of loneliness. So doing things with the body, uh, particularly with other people, reduces loneliness. Other things that I noticed were that, um, that people talk about loneliness as heat related. So under this humoral model that lasted for so many centuries, there's an idea that emotions are connected to heat so that um, cool temperatures produce very um, cold and watery emotions, for instance. So you have a lot of depression linked to crying, whereas fiery people who have heat uh, will be choleric. And there's that complex kind of language around temperature plays itself out now. So people who are lonely tend to feel cold. They describe themselves feeling cold. They take more hot baths. They have more hot drinks. They want to be um, surrounded by blankets and kind of swaddled. And I think those are really nice indicators of finding out whether a person is feeling lonely or is in need of some sort of social comfort. And we're a little bit back to the to the hunger analogies—that sort of physical hunger for warmth, which equates to the um, hunger for social warmth. And I think that those are very interesting and certainly when I've had lonely experiences in my own life, and I have never, um, I've never been a stranger to loneliness. I've had loneliness since I was a child in different ways in my life. But I am one of those people for whom it hasn't been a problem because I enjoy creativity and being alone. Um, but I experimented when I was writing this book. Um, and During a period of loneliness, I experimented on what difference does it make to my feelings of loneliness if I If I take a lot of hot baths or I, you know, wander around with blankets on or I move in a particular way. And it really did make a difference. And so in part, that's to do generally with when we move the body and we treat the body well. It does impact our mental health, of course. But it's also about um, recognising one's physical needs as part of one's emotional health and recognising that tending to the body is a very profound way of tending to the mind when it comes to loneliness.
0: That's, uh, that's a very interesting way of putting elements together because yeah. you see that warmth is uh, so closely related to touch. Yes, yes. And related to closeness, even if you're not touching, mm. even if you have someone you're very close with whose interpersonal warmth yeah. warms you. Yes. And uh, yeah, and yes, and the other aspects that you talk about, like dancing and being yeah. in large groups moving together, mm-hmm. is uh, being part of of a whole, yeah. part of something yeah. bigger. So they they're all, although not a, apparently the same and connected, yeah. they they really are. It's an important point to uh, to bring out. Yeah. Now, one out of four Americans. Mm-hmm recent polls even before covid uh came uh had don't even have one confidant yeah. that is an extraordinary survey response uh how can how can that be how can one fail to feel lonely
1: yeah.
0: it, in the absence of anyone
1: to talk yeah. to i think that's right and and that's when I see statistics like that, of all the different competing and often contradictory statistics that we, we get produced around global understandings of loneliness, it's precisely that. It's that, that people don't have a single person to talk, turn to strikes me as just the most profoundly painful situation. And I do think that this is linked to, um well, it's linked to the individualism that we prioritise in the West and this sense of, we ha- There's almost a competitive individualism about how we live our lives. We focus on work, uh, we focus on on consumerism, we focus on individual successes and we don't very often think about the wider community of which we're part or feeling accountable to others. Um, we've seen some fairly impressive evidence of people regenerating community during the pandemic and community is, is often used to describe all kinds of um Of relationships, particularly online ones, but community at its heart, when it originated as a word, is about communitas. It's about collaboration and exchange, and you give something back. And that is what is often um, derided or not part of everyday life now. And I think that is what has to shift if we want to get back to a situation where people don't feel so utterly um, abandoned. And it's precisely that, not having anyone to sort of to see you and to recognize you that's you know that's that's very much characteristic of of modern culture i think
0: but historically certain forms of distress have increased as as you note with loneliness but also uh, other forms have decreased over the centuries uh, women no longer get the vapors, for example, <laughs> as they did in Victorian <laughs> times. Yeah. So, it, it, talk about that a little bit.
1: What's... Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And I've, I've written before in a book called "This Mortal Coil" about um, differing attitudes towards uh, emotions and gender over the history, over the, uh, over time. And um, there are some emotions that are very gendered, and loneliness is also. Uh, very gendered. But I think it's absolutely right to say that over time, some emotions become more political and relevant and all consuming than others. And vapours in women is a very good example. And we still see those kind of gendered ideas playing out in medicine. So it is still the case that women are far more likely when they go to the doctors to be sent home with antidepressants. And they're far more likely to be uh, regarded as someone who's hormonal, <laughs> so you know there are modern day variations of the vapors that still play out in in those medical situations.
0: Well, it, the the confluence of the physical and the social and the psychological is being borne out by other disciplines as well. Mm. Cognitive neuroscience mm. is is one uh, where uh, the social contagion of loneliness and other things, including addiction and obesity, uh, has been documented, including changes, related changes in the brain.
1: Yeah. Can you address that from your point of view? Well, I'm very interested in neuroscience, particularly neuro- social neuroscience and the work of people uh, like the late John Cacioppo, who talk about the ways in which loneliness is contagious. And then we, we're back to that idea of infection aren't we in this image of an epidemic but when we use words like contagion Um, and so this wonderful research talks about the ways in which um, we find changes in the brain relating to how we interact with others I suppose from a cultural and a historical perspective what's interesting to me is the ways in which different social practices and different ways of being through history Work to inform how the brain develops. So, for me, it's more of a two way process that our Mm -hmm. ways of being inform structural changes in the brain and vice versa. So, I think that because I work on interdisciplinary material most of the time, I love to work with uh, people in other disciplines and look at how, how the language of contagion, for instance, can work both as a way of understanding changes in the cell structure of the brain, but also how we communicate with others and how loneliness might spread. You know, in in social terms, if we see people who are lonely, there is a tendency to avoid them. And um, it happens, particularly in Britain, it happens where people feel uh, there's a kind of element of shame attached to loneliness. So that people, if they see someone as being lonely, we have a phrase, which is Billy No Mates, which means that nobody actually cares enough to be friends with this person and there's clearly something wrong and one of the interesting changes with the pandemic is because we have now a, a language of loneliness in which it's not only people who were perceived as oddballs who are feeling lonely but actually hang on a lot of people are feeling lonely and the the ways in which loneliness is talked about is changing it opens up the capacity for a sort of contagion of kindness or a, or a contagion of community so there are different ways in which we can use the language of contagion to talk about social change that are really positive rather than seeing it as entirely negative.
0: And so you think that now people are not
1: ashamed to say that they feel lonely? There's definitely less shame, I think. Um, And I do think it's because people who ordinarily are seen as much more um, outgoing and sociable and gregarious are the ones who are stepping up on social media and saying they're lonely in lockdown. That's been quite an interesting shift. Um, So it changes the idea that if you are lonely, then it's because you don't know how to communicate, because it allows the possibility that loneliness is something that can affect anyone if the circumstances aren't right. What will be interesting is whether or not that shifts back after the lockdown, whether there is now an acceptance um, that people can be lonely or whether that will switch back again. I guess it depends what happens with the pandemic.
0: Well, you're right that in the COVID times, mm. it's clearly situational yes. to say, yes. I miss the yes. life I had and I feel lonely without it. Uh, yes. A few decades ago, the uh, famous psychoanalyst fromm Reichmann Uh, Wrote a a groundbreaking and I have to say a heartbreaking essay on loneliness. Yes. Uh, She noted in that writing that loneliness is so excruciating that most people don't talk about it. They don't even want Mm. to be reminded of it. And this was mid century, 1950s and 60s. Yes. Uh, And uh, she, in other writings, she noted that the essential work of her analysis with people that helped so many severely ill, mentally ill patients get better was her ability to be present with the pain of their loneliness. Do you think that's still the case?
1: Yes, I I think that is the case in terms of, I think she was absolutely right about the pain. There's There's a physical and a psychic pain that accompanies profound and extreme loneliness, particularly when it's attached to time, so that over uh, a longer period of time when the loneliness is chronic and there's a sense of it being unending and actually quite desperate, that is a, a, a profundity of experience that becomes very hard to communicate to somebody else. The, and it's it's been shown that the lonelier people get, the more they are likely to be within themselves. And the harder they find it even to register or understand a person's emotional expressions so that they might read a particular emotional expression as rejection when it's not intended that way and I think you know the fact that we are supposed to be very social beings um, even when we are introverted we are still essentially humans are still a social species I think there is a profoundness of experience there That unless we are able to communicate it, we do become very trapped and very locked in. And that's what I meant really by talking about the the experience of COVID is allowing it these languages to be more nuanced and people to say, this is happening and I'm feeling this and and to think about and reflect on what function loneliness is having in their own lives.
0: Yes, and as you point out, people who are lonely because of COVID isolation are experiencing transient loneliness. Mm as compared yeah. with the chronic loneliness you just mentioned, mm. which is so terribly destructive yes. and and may even be physically destructive so that it changes the brain, as yes. you said, yeah. to perceive the world differently. Yeah. But you also bring in another very interesting and maybe a little more lighthearted uh Topic, which is romance. Yes, <laughs> you, you say that the that the notion of the yeah. soulmate and the romantic ideal of finding the one contributes to loneliness.
1: Well, th- this comes really from thinking about what individualism means. Um, so we have this very paradoxical situation, particularly in Western culture, where we're encouraged to find the one, but at the same time, um, that one is supposed to be waiting for us, and it comes from these Platonic ideals about you know we're, there's another another part of ourselves waiting out there in the world for us but at the same time even romance is structured in very competitive ways and women are encouraged to be competitive to one another and the pursuit is always all important to you know to find the man to settle down it tends to be very heterosexual um, and it tends to be focused on this kind of very patriarchal family Um and I think that the challenge is some of these narratives about finding our special one, our soulmate, and so on, contribute to the sense of loneliness because a lot of people, even those who have you know been in long relationships and, and are married, they still don't feel that sense of connect. And so the reason I talked about that was really just to highlight that the sense of alienation that can happen when there is a gap between the relationships that you have and those that you feel you ought to have. So that idealizing this. This sense of the, you know, the um, the love that never lets you down, which in a sense is akin to the love of a parent or the love of a god, um, but that actually can be quite self-destructive if that is, that is the pursuit on its own. And and when we see this growth of loneliness, particularly among middle-aged people who are divorced, and and that corresponds to this search for love online, which can be a very fruitless uh, endeavor. I think we need to ask questions about what expectations we're putting on love and the idea that we will be completed by another person, which I do see as part of that entanglement of individualism.
0: And would that explain why millennials are the most likely generation cohort to report feeling lonely? I think millennials
1: do actually feel lonely a lot, don't they? But I also wonder whether in talking about loneliness as being inevitable or being entirely negative or or being part of life for millennials, I wonder whether we also also sort of produce a self fulfilling prophecy because it becomes um, it becomes a way of talking about experiences to feel you know we might be feeling one of those pinch points of experience where we're inevitably going to feel lonely when our life is changing or we're moving in a new direction. Um, but then you know it becomes loneliness and it becomes a I suppose it becomes a, an identity to feel lonely and disconnected. So while I, I'm sure that there are high rates of loneliness among millennials as other groups, I do also think that we can produce it because of the ways that we talk. And we do, we do actually blame millennials for quite a lot as well. And I wonder if that sort of, um, that distancing and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that sort of, that attitude sometimes I think can be quite problematic. And
0: people often blame the loneliness of the young on social media use. Yeah, they do.
1: Uh, yeah, and I'm intrigued by that because I think it's I think it's it's simplistic to talk about uh, social media as being entirely bad. Um, people have panicked about every form of technological innovation that's come along, and they worried that the landline, for instance, the telephone, would stop. Well, they worried that it would it would make women talk too much and that it would you know, <laughs> instead of doing their chores um, and, well, yeah, yeah. and that it would mean that people couldn't do face-to-face conversations anymore because they were too busy on the phone and they would lose the skills. And of course, this is really familiar ground. We're used to, we're used to these sorts of ideas. Um, with social media, it can be positive. It can be negative. And what would we do without it right now is what, oh, what yeah. me. Um, there is evidence that people who are lonely and have social anxiety, they benefit from being able to use social media. I think there is also a space for social media in, in many people's lives. The challenge is when it replaces all forms of social contact. So the evidence suggests that when people have relationships in real life and these are continued online or people have a blend of relationships offline and online, you know um social media can actually reduce loneliness where it's problematic is when it 's the only kind of contact there is um, and that 's one of the interesting things to me about what's happening during this pandemic is that we get to have these wonderful conversations online um, but that we lack the sort of sensory experiences that go along with them um, and so we've talked about touch and of course, if you might you know you'd meet friends for a cup of coffee and there might be hugs and there'd be also a wide range of sensory clues going on to how people are feeling and how the conversation is going. And on Zoom or on online uh, conversations or on social media, these are very narrowed. Um, So I think there's a quality missing, which is why people who have no um, offline friendships don't feel it's enough. And there is another question also, which bleeds us back to the sense of community. And if if community is about um, connectedness and responsibility and accountability to each other, Online communities don't intend to have that. Online communities are about particular interests. So whether it's Kim Kardashian or, you know, vegetables, I mean, these are interest groups, but there's no sense of um, loyalty or, or compassion or accountability for people from one another. And which is very different then to offline community and how that is embedded into the physical structure of everyday life.
0: Well, speaking of community, Uh, The 21st century has, besides the growth of loneliness, Mm -hmm. has also seen the growth of marginal groups like Mm -hmm. the homeless and uh, large refugee populations. Mm -hmm. What is the significance of having a home in the experience of loneliness and in the notion of the role of community?
1: Mm. Some of the loneliest people of all are homeless people, and I think this idea of the roofless and the rootless and the homeless and refugees, they tend to be the most marginalised in society and the ones that people don't really think about in relation to loneliness. Um, And some of the issues around belonging to home, of course, it's not it's not just a shelter. It's all of the emotional attachments and the sense of being worth something and the sense of belonging. Those complex emotional things that make us feel part of the world that's what's missing um so for homeless people for instance loneliness is another burden on top of often um, problems with addiction pro- histories of abuse can have mental illness there's a whole cluster of problems um and I think loneliness needs to be tended to too because it can produce a lot of um, difficulties both physical and psychological and the same the same is true of um of the refugee status and as you say it's um it's becoming, both of these experiences are becoming worse uh, and more more common statistically. And, and tending to the physical needs of refugees and the emotional needs of refugees is often far down uh, the scale of what is considered important by governments. And one of the things I noticed, for instance, is that elderly refugees are often not given things like hearing aids, which are so basic to make somebody feel that they belong to a community and they can hear other people talking. It's these it's these things that are considered almost luxuries, but they're fundamental to a sense of belonging. And of course, the problem with refugees and, and with um, homelessness is the way in which they are socially ostracized and they are alienated. And I can't imagine any form of loneliness more profound than being than being looked at on the street, as though you shouldn't be there, that you don't belong, even with which small amount of space you're taking up. Um, and so, I think an all-inclusive approach to loneliness, as being structural and existential, has to take account of what it means to belong in a fundamental way to a country, to a to a to a house, to a home, to a, a group of people, to feel included.
0: Absolutely, and in, in fact, the. It often occurred to me that what was most painful, what might have been most painful to someone mm. living on the street, is that everyone who walks by mm. looks away.
1: Yeah, yeah. just not they to don't even, even be, look yeah. them. In,
0: yeah, they don't look them in the eye to say, "I see you. Yeah. I, I like you." Yeah, uh, yeah. It's very
1: That's, dehumanizing, isn't it? That's precisely, I think. Yeah, but I've observed.
0: It's 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 the extreme of objectified that we look at objects. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'd like to get back. You mentioned the role of neoliberalism uh, in encouraging loneliness. I'd like you to expand on that a little because we've, we've uh, reviewed so many aspects of loneliness and physical and psychological and historical. Now let's drill down a little bit on the political.
1: Yeah. So when we see the emergence of um, loneliness first becoming very common around about 1800, that is accompanied by social and political and economic changes, uh, which mean that this drive towards individualism and away from a sense of collective responsibility is what facilitates the industrial revolution. It's what it's what allows factories to to start producing. It allows piece rate. It allows the idea of somebody you know, um, being paid for their labor, but it also allows this kind of movement that we have never seen before. And some of this is positive, of course, I'm in no way saying that um, early modern cultures were wonderful places to be, but it changes the ways in which people interrelate, and it changes how uh, people feel accountable or not for other people. So the waves of industrialization urbanization and secularity and change that accompanied the growth of post-industrial nations impacted on a person's sense of belonging and impacted on one's relationship with others so that competitive individualism tends to be um tends to be what matters and and the neoliberalism that is about the responsibility being on individuals not being on the state has produced severe problems i think not just in existential ways but in structural ways so one of the issues that we have in the uk is that we are as far as i know the only country in the world to have decided we need a minister for loneliness and we um we put that into place in 2018 now in many ways this has functioned as a soundbite it's a way of saying we're doing we recognize it's a problem or an epidemic but it's not related to it social or political or economic systems. But the reality is that at the same time as, um, as developing a Minister for Loneliness, there has been a complete breakdown in health and social care. There are more homeless people. There are even libraries, this space where people could come together without having to buy anything. Um, even libraries are being closed down. So it is a sense that the neoliberal policies that enable Uh, both individualism and social exclusion um, are producing loneliness. And I think one of the interesting things of thinking about loneliness in a global sense is that even those collective cultures like Vietnam that traditionally did not report these levels of loneliness are finding that where we have globalisation and more consumer goods and more um money available particularly for the rising middle classes and the relatively young people we have higher rights rates of consumerism but that is also accompanied by profound levels of loneliness and there is some interesting evidence that shows that lonely people are more likely to buy things so there is an argument actually mm-hmm. that loneliness is useful um loneliness prevents people from uh, allying against governments, it encourages people to spend. So there is an argument where we could see loneliness as being useful to neoliberalism. Um, But that cycle of dependency that gets created with materialism and loneliness is something that I think we really need to think about because if lonelier people buy more, the problem is that once they have bought, they still have loneliness. So loneliness is no um, replacement for social relationships or feeling cared for. Um And what happens is they then buy more, and this all perpetuates this this um disposable consumer economy, which isn't great for the planet and it's not great for us.
0: No, uh, but it's not uncommon for people to uh, default to retail therapy no, for any distress yeah yeah. So, yeah yeah, that's right yeah what What would you like to see the Minister of Loneliness yeah. do? what actual steps could government take?
1: Well, I think that understanding the complexities of loneliness. So I'd like to see the language change on how we talk about loneliness. I'd like it to be understood as a much more complex cluster of different emotions. I'd like for there to be a recognition that sometimes it's existential and sometimes it's structural. And when it is structural. What changes in welfare and, um, and social care can we put into place that prevent this from happening? How do we create communities that make people feel included and like they have a desire to belong? I mean, this is the, one of the problems in the UK with Brexit is that it has just revealed these huge differences in how people identify with the country and how they identify with each other. And and I think that it is the job of government to start healing some of those divisions in order to produce a better sense of well-being in society. And I'd also like for medical health care to focus on thinking about ways in which mind and bodies relate and how dealing with the body and tending to the body as a way of of dealing with mental health is also important. And it's a way of moving beyond this language of loneliness as an epidemic. That is something that, um, you know, is, is entirely about us as individuals, whereas it's, it's actually something about how we relate as individuals to each other and the society of which we're part. So most of this is about changes in language, but it's also about responsibility and accountability. And I'm not sure how we'd ever get there or whether we're going to get there, but um, it remains a goal. And you
0: think a government can play an important role, rather than the traditional forms of of combating or preventing loneliness mm. or creating belonging, which are family, religion, ethnicity, mm. neighborhood, something on a more local level than government i
1: think i think it's a i think it's a two-way process i mean i think we all have responsibility to other people and accountability to other people i think that government can play a role in leading by example i mean i think if if you look at how new zealand have handled the covid crisis and the sense of inclusivity and support that's been given to everybody that's a really key indication of that and sometimes the language of politics can divide people. so it's oh yes yes. certainly (laughs) (laughs) so i think yeah politicians have a responsibility to think about not just whether they're funding the right areas but also whether they are um you know modeling good citizenship what is it to be a good citizen and and certainly that runs parallel for me with being accountable for others and you know trying to do good in the world in order to prevent other people from feeling loneliness and actually when when we do things for other people; it makes us feel less lonely. So it's not it's not just altruistic. Yeah, All right, All
0: right. Well, Faye, uh, it's been a very enjoyable conversation, yeah. and yeah. you've been very generous with your time. Uh, before I let you go, tell us about what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, well, the UKRI funded uh, fellowship that I am doing, the Future Leaders Fellowship, is allowing me to look at the history of face transplants. So this is taking my work on emotions and bodies and um, and the sense of belonging and looking at how this works when people have had facial facial difference, when they've had accidents, when facial transplantation has become um, an option. And what does that do to our sense of identity and belonging? So the project Mm. is looking at um, questions around the history of face transplants internationally from 2005 to the present and it connects with this work because also often people feel lonely because they are socially ostracized and we don't really talk about that so much but people with facial difference or people who are the object of scrutiny because of how they look they do feel profoundly lonely.
0: Oh absolutely Mm -hmm. very important work because even slight disfiguration Mm or anomalies uh, have a profound emotional impact especially on growing children and adolescents absolutely Um,
1: yeah but thank you so much for your time it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and thank you for your important work
0: for being on the show today and thanks to our researcher Bela Pasikoff
1: bye-bye bye-bye thank you